0: Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture,
1: politics, and human flourishing.
0: Interesting people, interesting things.
1: Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, I'm delighted today to be joined again by my friend Jeffrey Tucker, who I see as a as a great American and one of the leading intellectuals of our day. And I, I met Jeffrey about a year and a half ago when we I brought him on to talk about the uh, the COVID lockdowns and the government uh, coercive uh, measures that were in place at the time. And while the obvious uh, measures have, have begun to recede, we're still seeing a lot of uh, damage done uh to the economy, to society, to people's lives from the, the measures governments took, not only in the United States, but worldwide. Um, Jeffrey, in response to this, founded the Brownstone Institute, um, which has gathered an incredibly interesting group of writers and thinkers to help get the, the word out to, uh, to avoid uh, any future recurrence of what we went through. Um Jeff's inc- Jeffrey's incredibly pro- prolific, written thousands of articles, ten books in five languages. And my most I think his most impressive feat for me is he writes a daily column for the Epic Times, which is a which is a must-read. Uh Jeffrey gave a speech at Hillsdale last month about uh the economic consequences of uh, the government reaction to lockdowns. And so with no further ado, Jeffrey, let's let's get started in here. What was the uh, what was the gist of what you talked to the folks at Hillsdale about and
0: the professor there invited me because he said he said the students don't really they can't make a connection between the pandemic uh, policies and and their disastrous lives like you know how come they go to the store and, and chicken and rice cost $40 whereas it, <laughs> it used to cost 17 a couple of years ago so you know what's going on but to make these connections is is in many ways the essence of what economics is about it's about Causes and effects, and tracing through the consequences of of actions, of of using certain means and achieving certain ends, and that's what economics is. And so, um, and I've just noticed this that a lot of people just do not understand. Like you could see it in the midterms. You know, Republicans raging against inflation but but rarely actually explaining why it exists. It doesn't exist because Biden's bad. It exists because of certain real changes that uh, were made in the macroeconomic monetary environment throughout 2020 and 2021 that had certain inevitable results. I mean, the money that they created had to become endemic, same as the virus. So my job in that essay was, and that presentation was to connect Everything uh, together to, to, to just draw up all the linkages and, and the presentation I gave to Hillsdale had a lot of fancy charts and things like that. Some of which are very, I was very proud of, but in the Hillsdale uh, edition they couldn't print, they couldn't print them all, which I understand. So I had to describe it as best I could.
1: <laughs> so you were. You are using hand puppets to just, I saw your charts. They were, they were gorgeous. <laughs> uh, I got, yeah, so they were very good. Are, are, but you know, one of the things that I think you get, get right to the heart of is that, mm-hmm. you know, my world, the world of private equity, economics, wall street, and I've been an economic actor forever. And what the politicians, the political class, intellectual class does not get is everything in the economy is interconnected, it's woven. It's something that this piece, this thread's connected down here. It may not be obvious to what's happening over here, but you cut one thread and all of a sudden the whole fabric starts to unravel. And when we started declaring some businesses essential and others non-essential, who are these people that get to decide that this is essential? I mean, I guess we had Whitmer in, uh, in Michigan deciding that this section of home depot is essential and this section isn't yeah and that, that's like how yeah. on earth would she know because what we're seeing now with the supply chain issues and pricing and forget the flood i mean don't forget the flood of money but it's much more than that when you when you mess around with with deeming things essential or not essential you don't know what you're doing
0: they did the same thing with medical procedures too they said well uh, that's an unessential or uh, uh, elective surgery, so you kind of get that done. You know, we, that's a diagnostic that you can get done this week, next week, next, week, next month. You can wait on that. If well, got one, tooth
1: one, one of the one of the industries was damaged, ironically enough. I think you point out it was the healthcare industry and hospitals. Mm-hmm. They, they, mm-hmm. Instead of instead of you know booming business because of these so called uh, uh, co- you know COVID uh, virus issues, they they were they were largely empty.
0: That's true. You could tell it from looking at the parking lots at your local hospital. I mean, everybody just vanished after March sixteenth. It is emptied out. Uh, every governor bill had a uh, had a law, had a rule in place that emanated from the CDC that said hospitals need to re- reserve all their beds for for COVID patients. Well, and so every you know every health department in the country did this. And I'm telling you, there's still. A lot of things we need to know. There's every aspect of these details we need to chase down. I run write about this every day on browser. So we've got lots of intrepid researchers looking into every aspect of this response. So where did that Edict come from? Why did they think that was a good idea? It led to disaster because they all did it the same day. Now the, here's what's interesting. as far as we know, Covid had been, you know, in the u s for quite a long time, you know, since since October yeah. probably of 2019 and uh we only became conscious of it you know really super conscious of it of of it as a threat in late February and it was that moment that they you know passed this edict well you know it, it pertained to the whole country as if a virus arrives everywhere at the same time and it's equally severe for all communities it wasn't So in many places where the hospitals just closed to non-COVID patients, they didn't have any patients at all, which led to a great financial crisis in in the hospitals. So that when government came along and said, tell you what, if you got a COVID patient, we're going to bump you a nice subsidy and, and your Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements. You know, if you have somebody on a... Oh, they, were, they, were,
1: they were marking the death certificates accordingly, were they not? They
0: were, and they had an incentive to because they were bleeding money all over the place and needed yeah. subsidies to keep going. So you're exactly right. One thing led to another. And it was in, in the healthcare industry where... spending, and I have, you know, again, another chart on this, spending and healthcare plummeted during the pandemic. Sometimes I'd like to think about what future historians are going to say about this great COVID period. They look at a chart and see healthcare spending uh, collapsing and employment in healthcare industries uh, plummeting and 300 hospitals furloughing nurses at the height of the pandemic in the spring of 2020, what are they going to say? I mean, this is a very weird pandemic when <laughs> we had a dramatic reduction in the uses of healthcare resources and workers.
1: Well, do you, look, let me set a stage a bit for brownstone. You found a brownstone in order to make sure this never happens again. What, what, who are the people involved and, and what's everybody working on?
0: Oh, well, we've got researchers, you know, they're just trying to figure out what happened to us alone. Who are the responsible parties, you know, yeah. who made the decisions to lock us down and why? Uh, we're getting closer to answers on this, I have to say, uh, the more that time goes on. In fact, my my sense of what happened has, has gradually shifted with this research. One thing we know, we're pretty sure now that this was a national security style response that the country went on a wartime footing. Uh, as inspired by national national security council and department of homeland security so that the cdc and the nih were a cosmetic cover and and fauci did all the press inf- interviews but they weren't the ones that were responsible for the for the planning and probably this happened because there was a perception that sars-cov-2 was a bioweapon uh, another possible theory is that uh, they used sars-cov-2 as a kind of trial run for a potential uh, biological warfare attack, and they wanted to have a real-time experience of what it was like to put the country under a quasi-martial law, which is what it felt like at the time. This is a kind of a new understanding. We've got a lot of documentation on it. This is the kind of research we're we're engaged in now. And but this uh, is
1: something. It. This is something that you had to figure out. You had to FOIA. It's not like these agencies came forward with this uh, voluntary admission. That this yeah. Was this case. There's.
0: It's not the case that there's some one foyer where there's a document that comes out and says, oh, so here's yeah. the truth. It's a matter of piecing together things. Uh, I'll just give you one example. There was a document that came out that was released on, on March 13th by uh, Health and Human uh, Services, March 13th. This was This was three days before the Trump press conference and one day after the travel restrictions. Uh, that document was released by the New York Times about six weeks afterwards. It was a confidential document. And I had read it several times and not really understood what it was. I was looking, these documents can be very complicated. I was looking kind of in the wrong places, but I know that document was important for some reason. We have a researcher named Debbie Lehman, who's now uh, a Brownstone fellow. We have seven Brownstone fellows now. And she she figured out what that document was really about. It was about the allocation of responsibilities. Uh, to agencies and noted that the national security council was sitting above uh, the CDC in the pecking order of, of rulemaking well, now that's really interesting
1: well maybe you've understand dug into something i don't understand which is china's reaction to this even today and the and the, the cove the zero covid strategy or policy that G's employed in in china up to this very moment. I mean, they've had a big chunk of their economy locked down. And I guess my question would be why? Because they'd seen this virus come through the United States and it didn't have much effect on many people except for uh, older people and people who are already at risk because of some other, um, you know, <laughs> Diabetes or heart heart issues, or things like that. But it didn't affect most of the population. Yet China is now doing the same very bad stuff that was done in in the worst of the states here here in America.
0: So your question is, why hasn't China pivoted?
1: Yeah, or do they believe that this was a bio weapon, and that uh, they're more afraid of it than 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 you or I are because we're looking at what happened in the United States wasn't here. They seem extremely, um, their reaction is draconian, and I just wonder uh-huh. why.
0: So um, I'm open to any theories. I don't see a lot of evidence for that, though. Um, I think you can explain the reaction of the CCP to this virus and Xi Jinping's uh, passionate attachment to lockdowns. Uh, just as a matter of political pride. If you think about it, uh, you know, long predating COVID, there was this kind of, uh, uh, I guess you would call it manifest destiny that China had developed as a a political ethos that they're going to surpass the U.S. in GDP. They're going to be the world's leading country in economics and so on and so on. So when the virus came along, they used what in fact is a, uh, uh, there's precedent in in China's history for for lockdowns due to germs. I mean, this it's, it's not a it's not a Western country. you know, we I mean, don't think about human rights and freedoms like we do. It's a little bit different. And so lockdowns were that's just putting, sort of what that's
1: putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah,
0: okay. so lockdowns were just what he did. and <laughs> but what's important, Bill, is that for from Xi's point of view is that, he somehow successfully marketed this strategy to the whole world. Now you talk about political pride. so he locks down Wuhan and then the World Health Organization, you know sends a junket there that included you know the deputy uh, assistant to, to fauci and and lots of Western epidemiologists and and gave them a kind of Potemkin village tour of Wuhan. This would have been, February 16th, lasting up to the 24th, right? And so so they're flying them here and flying them there. We had a disease. But we locked everybody down. It was brutal. It was tough. It was, yeah. it was hard decisions, but we got rid of it. And these uh, 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 tools, these chumps um, associated with the World Health Organization and, and Fauci's NIH wrote a report saying, wow, they did it. They really did it. So they recommended this. The World Health Organization said the whole world should follow what Xi Jinping did in China. They have figured out how to control this virus. Everybody should follow. So so, he's, so meanwhile, he's opened up the country, right? This was talking about late February. And then there were no lockdowns for a very long time. Cases yeah. were zero. No lockdowns. No real deaths as far as we know. We don't know the truth. But that's what it looks like. We
1: don't, we don't know what their numbers are.
0: We don't know what the numbers are. But the whole world is following him now. So imagine... Yeah. If you, you came in, you, you've engaged in a wackadoodle policy that, that's utterly ridiculous, but the entire world is celebrating you as a magic person who's yeah. figured out how to conquer a virus. You are more powerful than even nature. Your intelligence is even able to outwit a simple respiratory pathogen. That's how brilliant you are. So of course he <laughs> he, he, he,
1: got, he
0: got attached he, to this she idea. She would like,
1: she, given his, behavior up since then, he would have, he would have appreciated that. He, he likes that.
0: <laughs> so that's
1: why he's attached to it. So it's very
0: difficult for them to, to roll back this policy because this is his great contribution, you know? So uh, I don't know uh, what Stalin was to wheat production. Xi Jinping was to SARS-CoV-2.
1: This is Bill Walton show. I'm here with Jeffrey Tucker, and we're talking about... Uh, I'm not sure exactly what we're talking about. A very interesting conversation about uh, COVID and uh, our reaction to it and China's reaction to it. And let's circle back to our reaction to it. Has Brownstone put together a punch list of the horribles that, that came out of this? You know, excess deaths, uh, economic damage, uh, educational attainment, that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, How, we have, how, we how have, bad? We have... how bad was it?
0: Well, we lost we lost two years of education, obviously, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. The the amount of substance abuse and and addiction uh, that's out there as a result of the pandemic response is just and all this stuff is perfectly predictable, but uh, appalling. We've lost you know in terms of of life expectancy, two years in three. Wow. You know that's just unbelievable, and the hundreds of thousands of businesses are destroyed. Uh, vaccine mandates led to more than a million people being displaced from their jobs or shifting employment the demographic of people in this country compares to what it was in you know in the westward expansion of the end of the 1830s i mean just the number of people who left blue states going to red states which made the red states redder and the blue states bluer yeah very interesting but new york has been shattered i was just i you know, I was just uh, in New York uh, a couple of days ago. I, that place is just transformed. You know, you can't safely ride the subway, really. The entire place reeks of weed. The entire city smells of pot. Right? I mean, it's very interesting, and um, it's there's it's a crime, a crime ridden, and and half the, the the commercial real estate is is empty. You know, so I mean, the, the, the level of tragedy. And don't forget, there were about three months there with these. These people segregated the great city of New York by by uh, but for looking for evidence of, of compliance with the shots, which meant that forty percent of the members of the African American community in New York City itself could not go to museums, theaters, restaurants, or bars
1: because they didn't have the the shot. So,
0: you know, the, it's it's very difficult. The In terms of the inflationary effects of many do, looking at, back at the numbers to make sure they're right, right before this call, looking at M2, we really did create over the course of two years uh, a, about $6.5 trillion. In,
1: in, M2, M2 is one of the measures we use to determine money supply. And that was the up. only
0: one we can we can use right now, really, because they in May of 20, I'm sure yeah. you know this, they changed M1, the definition right. and didn't backdate it. So it's useless. So we use M2 now. $6.3 trillion. And in terms of transfer payments over that same period of time, um I'm I'm seeing uh, t- t- more than ten trillion dollars of increase in tr- sheer raw transfer payments for individuals. The effects of this were very interesting uh, because in the early early days, I'm talking about spring and summer and fall of 2020, when all this stuff began, you saw real incomes go through the roof. Now, keep in mind, this is inflation is not here yet, right? So people were seeing thousands of dollars dropped into the bank accounts, businesses, individuals. Which you just, you go to your uh, Wells Fargo account, and suddenly there's an extra eight thousand dollars for you from uh, courtesy of Uncle Sam. And <laughs> when does that ever happen? Yeah. So, so we had major uh, money transfers going on. Real income was soaring. Savings went through the roof, reaching I think as high as. or something like that, but it was all, all the savings were in the form of newly printed cash, which was reached at its peak at 27% per annum increase in, in raw money. So savings were going through the roof, interest rates were still zero, and people were paying off their credit cards and using the balance and spending on Amazon mm-hmm. and Netflix and so and so and so. All these big tech companies were selling computers like crazy. They're all going through the roof. Their price valuations, everything was pretty. And till January of twenty one, where everything gradually began to flip in the other direction. So savings went from a high of I don't know thirty percent something like that. Now we're down to a historic low of three. 0.2 percent. We've been through 19 successive months of declines in real income. Credit card debts that were only you know fully paid off. We would reached a historic low. Are now at the greatest uh, increase rate of increase we've seen in 20 years. So if, look, think about this way. So we were rich. Now we're poor, and it's getting worse because 19 well, straight months of declining income, falling savings and soaring credit card debt is not the basis of prosperity.
1: So you you have a great ana- way to put it I think I think it's from your speech where you said essentially since January of 2021 the government has stolen 15 to 18% from Americans through inflation. That's right. And and we're just that much, you know, and it's probably the higher number and the thing that's happening is that that's not going to stop right now this is going to continue and we could see we could see i like the word government theft of of 25 30% in the course of the left, you know the next i think it's very years. likely um, I, mean, I was looking just, at the m2 M- yeah
0: the m2 M- numbers right now we've declined a little bit in terms of uh, we've, we've, we've sucked, sucked out some of that money, not much, a little bit, but the rest of it has to become endemic. So I think we're looking at another year or two of inflation and what it's doing right now to Federal Reserve policy. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Jerome Powell's policies are doing the right thing right now. What he's trying to do is reach what he calls a terminal rate. What that means is that uh, the return on treasury bills needs to be positive once you adjust for inflation. It hasn't been that way for 14 years. Mm-mm. So that's going to change everything. It's not just that it's seizing up all real estate markets, and that's happening already. I mean, it would be a buyer's market for were any buyers. Uh, but it's going to affect uh, the, the uh, everything. Like if people actually experience a reward for savings, and capital starts seeking a, a safe return in the form of treasuries that's not you know, in the negative realm, but it goes into the positive realm. It's going to affect uh, financial markets, uh, spending habits, savings rates, uh, advertising dollars spent on silly big tech platforms and everything. We're going to see a a wrenching out of the uh, cheap money economy of the last 14 years. So if Powell is serious about this, and I think he is, Uh, life in this country is going to change dramatically. I mean, so much for racking up $200,000 in student loan debt to get a fake credential to go to work in a six-figure job where you don't have to do anything but use a mouse jiggler to trick your boss into thinking you're on Slack, right? Those days are done.
1: Well, we're also stuck with their paradigm, which is they think the only way to stop inflation is to smash the economy, take a hammer out and crush it. And they do, you know, the other way to do it would be to grow the economy. And (laughs) Slash the, you know, the, the regulatory states become unbelievable and yeah. get get yeah. oil and gas, get the fossil fuel industry back in business. And we all would have true. some chance to grow our way out of it. But they think economic growth is inflationary, which is. Uh,
0: yeah. John Tamney writes very compellingly about this. Yeah, John, the time see, and John's think- great. Yeah, yeah, I think he's right about this. They actually do believe this. Uh, but here's the thing. Powell is not in charge of regulations. He's not in charge of spending. He's not in charge of tax policy, but he is in charge of the federal funds rate. So he's doing his part to... Uh, uh, mop up some of this excess liquidity. So, but you're exactly right. You need also a fiscal and regulatory response. You need a right. dramatic reform of the administrative states. So right. We reduce their bureaucracy and inspire small business again, and so on and so on. That is not happening.
1: Well, and we've got the, the slender, slender, slender majority in uh, the House, and they retain control of the Senate, so the idea that we're going to do something um, dramatic is, uh, is uh, highly unlikely. Highly um, unlikely.
0: So we I, need: I, to- I
1: like this. The inflation already in the bag is going to cost the American family 8,739 dollars over the next 12 months. Yeah. That's stunning.
0: It's it's stunning, um, and you know we're talking about a, a rich country. We can't forget that there are a lot of places in the world that are suffering a lot more than the U.S. Uh, the millions, you know, face uh, real privation of of an astonishing sort. I mean, global poverty is is is, is take it turned the corner. All this began with the pandemic response. I mean, this is this is a disaster uh, for the world. Not to mention the prospects of human liberty itself. I mean, it was a it was a catastrophic time. We really went a bad direction. And I'm not really convinced of the idea that it was all kind of a deliberate great reset plotted by Klaus Schwab. I don't believe that. I think I think it was just an... an but Klaus amazing... makes
1: such an excellent Bond villain, though. I mean, for entertainment value alone, we need to paint him. Anyway, yeah, right. let's let, let no. continue. <laughs> but he's he's quite a type.
0: Yeah, he is. Well, the world's full of, of fakes and liars these days, and they're all being exposed. Uh, but I tell you what, we have got to turn the corner. We've got to rally around, you know, old-fashioned ideals like individual liberty and human rights and and get back to economic growth and cut the administrative state. All this is absolutely essential. We're just going to sink further and further. I think I wrote just yesterday about a little bit of a nostalgic column about 1980. You know, that was... We were, we were in a very bad time in the late 1970s with stag, stagflation, the great national malaise, cultural crisis, all around. You know, uh, a handful of great intellectuals, you know, among whom George Gilder and people like David Stockman, Ronald Reagan, and just a handful of others really just kind of turned everything around and put us on a great track. And we, we experienced a, a, a real restoration of the country. It really was mourning in America. So it can happen, but you've got to get the policies right.
1: Well, it sounds like that's something you and I should be doing now. Although the names you mentioned, those are, those are, the, those are the gods of the uh, of a free market uh, economy, which is uh, now, but what, you make an, a very important point, though, and I think people need to understand this. You can't treat a health crisis or and you don't deal with a health crisis and act like you can separate that out from the economy. You gotta really say there. There are other method. There are other methods here, and don't touch. Don't touch the economy because if you do that, you're only going to make things worse. And now we have abundant evidence that that's true.
0: Yeah, it was. It must have been very strange for you. It certainly was for me when I heard people talking about this idea of turning off the economy, shutting down the economy, so that we can focus on health. I mean there is an economics of health. They all go together. And you cannot turn off an economy as if it's a casino that's that's closing earlier because of a hurricane threat or something like that. That's not the way it works. You're talking about destroying uh, lives. And I'm not even sure that the public health establishment has, has really learned this lesson. I was just at a debate in New York between uh, our friend Jay Bhattacharya and a public health a dean of Public Health at Yale University or something like that with whom he was debating, and the guy is not doesn't have a s- slightest regret, not one regret about anything they did. He said, we had to do it. We had to keep everybody separate so we could slow the spread, and wait for the vaccine, and now uh, not enough people have gotten the vaccine, so that's why COVID is still around us. I mean, he was saying these things, and you know, you listen to this stuff. It's really tragic. They don't, they don't have regrets. And they have every intention of repeating this experience next time around, too. Biden's pandemic plan makes no apologies. In fact, the only thing they apologize for is not having centralized response enough. They're bitter that such a thing as Georgia, Florida, and South Dakota even existed at all, that we have a federal system and some states departed from the norm. And Thank God that happened. But they want to make that impossible next time around. This is serious stuff. These people, not a single power that they used to lock us down before has been diminished. Yes, the courts have, you know, cut this policy or that policy a little bit here and there, too little, too late. But in general, all the policy, all the powers that they had before, they have now still. And they'll use them again. So this is as far as I'm concerned, this is the fight of our lives. And this is why I started Brownstone because I didn't see any anybody real, anybody else really picking it up with the kind of focus that we have, and and uh, and by the way, uh, both George Gilder and David Stockman are on my board, so I'm very very happy about that. So uh, we're we're trying to inspire a, a kind of a new intellectual renaissance, you know, so with focus on research. Another thing that I've I've done at at Brownstone is we picked up. There has been a great diaspora of good minds that have lost jobs, lost venues, lost uh, research locations, uh, having to give up law practices to go pro bono to sue the state of New York. You know, these kinds of things. This Fellows Program picks these people up, gives them a home, gives them a community, enables them to continue to do their great work uh, for for a full year while they, while they find a new direction in life. That's what the Fellows Program is about. I'm very proud that we have it. We've only, you know, been in existence for eighteen months, and already I have seven uh, people on the fellows program. So I'm I'm very happy. So how many pe-
1: how many people are able? To, are you able to help em- employ so they can keep doing this good work?
0: Well, right now, uh, I'm able to support seven.
1: Okay, we need to make that seventy. How do we find your website? Yeah. Brownstone.org?
0: Uh, yeah, brownstone.org. and and you're right. This is a scalable program. And I didn't. Scalable.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, it is scalable, and I've never heard of a nonprofit organization that works precisely like this. My model, of course, is the interwar diaspora of Viennese intellectuals that had to flee. And where did they go? They had to have a home. They went to Geneva. They came to New York. They went to many different places, and they did. They were able to continue the work. As far as I'm concerned, that kind of work is what saved. Uh scholarship, you know, in the 20th century, and and did a lot of did great good for the world. So we need that again. So that's the model we're using uh for this for this fellows program. And and I tell you what, um, when I was able to call these people, and I you know, I would love to tell the individual stories without being pathetic, but there's some really powerful stories here. People who stood up for principle and paid a huge price for me being able to place that call and say. I've got very good news. We're going to make you a, a, a Brownstone Fellow really? for twenty twenty three. Give you a venue, yeah. give you support, and it gets you through this period of your life. I mean, you know, followed by tears and thank yous, and just, I mean, it's just something we can do together to 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 make a little bit of a difference in the world. It may maybe the difference we make, but I'm just really really proud that we have that program and super super thrilled about its prospects. And a lot of people really need. Seven's not enough. But it's a good start oh, No,
1: Well, the thing that was dismaying was the number of think tanks, supposedly conservative think tanks that went right along with the lockdowns and the masks and all the and, and the aftermath of that and didn't really fight back um, and should have. And of course, the churches were in that that mode as well. And most all of our institutions just uh, um, just folded up like tents. Uh, you didn't, you want to start at Brownstone. I, I, but I think what you're doing is so important because we can't let this happen again. And and we need to, the education task is enormous to get people to understand that you, you, you do this again and that, uh, you know, God knows how we make our way back from it.
0: I, I you know, the recovery from, from what we've done is, going to take a very long time if it ever happens. I think about, especially the kids, right? And I had two years of education, then when they finally went back and you know, having their mouths covered, taught that human life is nothing but pathogenic avoidance, that you know everybody is a disease vector. This is not yeah. the basis of enlightened philosophy. This is a brutal and barbaric uh, philosophy of life. And we have to uh, completely reject it. I will be happy. To get some apologies from the elites who did this to us, but they are not apologizing. No, that's not going to happen. They're not only not
1: going to apologize; they refuse to be held accountable. So, as I
0: say, you know, at that debate uh, in New York the other night, I was just sitting there, just astonished at one of the you know world's smartest, most educated elites in the public
1: health defending every last thing that they did, every bit of it. Well, (laughs) that's, um, we'll we'll pause to reflect on that because that's the problem. Uh, Jeffrey, I know you've got, we've got to let you, let you go back to hopefully saving the country intellectually. Uh, (laughs) How about a final word here? Let's, uh, how should people, Support with say How do we we get behind
0: this? So my my final word here is just as follows. In the 1920s, there were a lot of intellectuals who said that the world was sweeping to destruction. And people didn't listen to them, but they were right. The world was sweeping to destruction. And it was saved from the brink of disaster in many parts of the world by brave intellectuals who threw themselves into the battle. These are also these times. Nobody can afford to sit on the sidelines and say, I don't care. Whatever happens, it happens. No, it's gonna involve all of us and all of our efforts. Civilization really is at stake right now. We cannot live in a world of lockdowns that they try to create for us. We need to to claw our way out of this and it's gonna involve everybody. And why? Because everybody will be affected. You cannot just hide out, even in Florida. (laughs) <laughs> it'll, it'll 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 eventually get to you so um i would appreciate any support the brownstone uh you can give brownstone and i i can promise you that that every dime we're getting is going to a good cause to help people who are brave telling the truth they're doing the research they're showing courage at a time when there aren't enough people doing that so i think they deserve our our support um, I think that everybody should should if you don't know what to do. I think this is one thing you can do.
1: Well, I'm a supporter, and I'll be sure. I'll be supporting in the in the future. You'll be happy to hear. Uh, oh, yes. And uh, so this is this is a message we need to keep getting out over and over. So Jeffrey Tucker, founder of Brownstone Institute, and uh, a great thinker and great American. Thanks for joining, and and thank you, thank you all for joining in on this. This is an important. Uh, issue for us to understand and to act on, uh, and so uh, stay tuned for future missives from Jeffrey and uh, Brownstone, and uh, uh, join in the fight for freedom. So thanks for joining, and of course you can find this show on all the major platforms, CPAC now, and on Monday nights, and um, Rumble, and YouTube, and you know the whole the whole list of sh- whole list of platforms. And uh, anyway, thanks, and we'll be back with more uh, quite soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to TheBillWaltonshow.com to choose from over a 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.